Sing, goddess, the, the anger of when Peleus, God created son the heavens Achilles. and the earth. Tell me the about earth a complicated to me equal to the gods that man. On it hang a thousand bucklers. Man is Agamemnon. My husband shall be the ground where justice is delivered. Gentlemen, I'm worse. Would you not forget it? Ever can destroy. Will be to govern the peoples of the world in your empire. Welcome to the good fight light. It's like the normal good fight, but with less hosts. Yep, it's me, Artish here, and just Tim today. Um, sadly, everyone else was unable to make it. Yeah, maybe not sadly. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> see if we invite them back. In some way, though, this is this is a, a true classic, right? We're like back in the the cabin days when it was just Grace Alita and, and I recording in the the lovely squeaky table of the nice cabin in Kentucky, and it was two. So, in some ways, we're going back to the beginning. Before my time. Um. <laughs> yes, before your time. Um, speaking of beginnings, we're talking about today the beginning of the greatest work of literature in all of history. Debatable, but we'll keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Which is none other than Virgil's Aeneid. Um, most people are confused when I pronounce it Aeneid. They're like, what is that? Because everyone apparently just says Aeneid, Aeneid. But at the end of the day, I'm just pronouncing it like a classics major does, which is that the A-E at the beginning makes a diphthong, which makes the I sound, so it's Aeneid. If you were familiar with your medieval Latin, you'd know that eventually the A-E slowed down and became more of an A sound, so I might slip into the Aeneid. Wow. You know, not everyone is perfect. Fact, no one is perfect. Um, so the Aeneid, just a, a brief introduction. It's actually probably not too disputable that it's the greatest work of literature written in Latin. I think that's a pretty standard introduction to it. Um, it's written kind of around the turn of the, I mean, century time time period from bc to ad um it's actually never finished virgil never finished editing it but um when he died he actually wanted the manuscript to be destroyed and augustus who was the emperor at the time uh, kind of saved it and had it published so we have an emperor to thank that it sticks with us today and it's kind of this grand so it's an epic poem it's in the tradition of homer um, and it's this grand narrative of a Trojan soldier, Aeneas, who escapes from the destruction of Troy um, at the end of the Trojan War. And then his journey with uh, some other Trojan men, eventually, you know, through the Mediterranean to Rome, uh, which then was not Rome, but, you know, to the area where Rome would be. And he uh, fights against the Italians who are living there and Eventually, um, the idea is this is the ancient founding of what would eventually become Rome. Um, so it's kind of a, a very important work in the Roman mind, not only at this point in history, but also for the next uh, couple centuries of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think of it. Well, 
we'll talk about this more as we go on, but frankly, just how this kind of serves as an origin story for, in serving as an origin story for Rome, what we have to realize is just how city centered the Romans were, yeah. um, that they, there were people who didn't even really have a cosmogony in this to the same degree that um, the Greeks did. They they mostly had I don't know what you call it an urbogony ur- ur- like they they focused <laughs> on the city of Rome um, yeah. as the center of things. Hike herbs, this city. Um, so what I kind of wanted to talk about, um, in a very abstract sense, is this criticism that's often levied against the the Aeneid, which is, oh, it, it's just a, it's just Homer, but in Latin. Um, I remember my, my lit hum instructor jokingly criticized it that way. He, he would say, ah, yeah, this Aeneid, it's, it's pretty ridiculous. You know, it's, it's not as good as the original. Um, so there's actually like a rich tradition in the classics and even today, um, of riffing, you know, you like riff off of the tradition you're participating in. And so I wonder, what do you make of that? Well, it's, I can, I can understand the criticism to some degree, but that said, I mean, boost, I might be completely off on this, but who is to say that the Iliad and the Odyssey are the first they're the first surviving, I suppose, epic poems of Greece, eldest, oldest epic poems in Greece, but we don't really know what oral traditions went before, how many previous, say, traditions or even full poems had existed before then that for some reason or other just haven't come down to us or didn't have the same degree of impact. So, yeah, there is that tension between is this the greatest work or what can be built off of this that I think continues. Yeah. I think of it more in a sense of like richness or, or depth. Um, and you can see this even in like in scripture, in Revelation, for example. I think that's probably the, the biggest example where you have John really pulling on all of these sentences and phrases from the Old Testament prophets, from um, from like passages in Genesis. And it's just this very rich uh, and very deep meaning that you you kind of have to understand everything that came before to get a sense of what in the world he's talking about in his book. And you get a, a similar sense in, similar, not the exact same, but in the Aeneid where you have kind of these very intentional recreations of Homeric phrases of Homeric themes and even from other poetry from not only Virgil's time, but you know, the entire space before him. And these are, they're not meant to be like, uh, copied. They're meant to increase kind of the, the, the depth of meaning that's there. And you can kind of go back and you can read all of these other works and see the richness of this tradition. And with that, then, the i don't want to say intelligence but just the capacity that virgil has to understand the tradition that he's working in yeah i like that i like the idea of historical perspective or just being later in time adding a 
layer of richness that didn't exist before. I think even aesthetically, there can be the sense that we're hearkening back to something that's old and to some extent it's passed away. We've seen what happened to it and yet we're hearkening back to it. So there's an aesthetic level, there's a sense of transience almost Mm -hmm. that might heighten the experience. Yeah, yeah. You said you had some uh, things you wanted to talk about. Right. So I want to go back to that point I made earlier about the intense focus on the city, um, on uh, the city of Rome. Uh, This is something, well, uh, there's a simile in book one um, where it's comparing, where it's talking about Poseidon and the wrath of the ocean and so forth and Aeneas suffering that. And the interesting thing is it's a Homeric simile, so it's an extended simile. Um, But if we think back to the similes in, say, the Iliad and the Odyssey, frequently we have human action, um, conflict between warriors, for instance, being compared to a natural phenomenon or a phenomenon, um, you know, uh, or compared to animals or something in nature. And here we have the exact reverse. We have a natural phenomenon, the storm being compared to not only a human um, situation, but very specifically a civic situation, a situation of civic strife being quelled by what um, I'm looking at the Dryden translation, so it's a little older, but um, by someone who's called a grave and pious man um, quelling civic strife. This would have resonated with the readers of the time after all the civic strife, um, talking about the emperor, essentially. So, But this idea of the importance of civic order, the importance of the city itself, that we can reverse similes to point to the city, um, even comparing gods to the emperor. And this importance of the value of um, what's called piety or pietas, I think those are all good things to talk about. A lot to talk about there, especially because Aeneas is... is that's like his his trait is that mm. pietas, um, his piety. Um, on the city, though, um, I, that is just a com- complete historical uh, treasure trove to talk about um, that idea of civic strife. And, I mean, just the hundred years before Virgil was just full of that kind of stuff. And then Augustus... Um, the grave and pious man um, does bring it an end to it in a way. I was debating someone about that last night, actually. Um, I tend to fall more on the pro pro Brutus, uh, not the pro Caesar side of that debate. But um, I wonder just in, in that sense then of civic strife and kind of the, the importance of civic order to creating a work of of this magnitude right Mm. like the 50 years before virgil you really don't get very much uh artistic expertise Mm -hmm. um why well for two reasons one either they're too busy running away to write anything of literary quality or two they were killed and more often the latter so in that sense then the importance of having um Peace of having order for uh, the expression of important ideas. Um, it actually makes me think more of um, Augustine's City of God, 
mm-hmm. and thinking about the church as a city. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I think that's something that's very rich to talk about um, later, especially when you think about what Christians can learn from you know, this idea of the city. Uh, I wanted to go yeah, even further, thinking of what you were saying about civic strife and the importance of peace, because the Aeneid and um, Augustine later in the City of God brings this up, really asks the question, how do we ensure peace? Mm-hmm. And there is this idea of violence associated with the um, with the imperium, with um, the enforcing of right order. Yeah. Um, later, I forget which book it's in, there's the whole story of Hercules fighting Cacus um, on what would become the founding place of Rome. Cacus is like this semi-human um, you know, brute who steals and you know lives only for himself. So he's really being caricatured um, as this basically unhuman, um, you know, almost animal type thing that is opposed to the civilizing force of you know um, Rome. And there's an extremely violent scene in which they fight it out, and Hercules finally wins. So in that sense, is the question raised: What is the? How do we get peace? And again, Augustine brings this up in the city of God. Is it really a peace if it's kept in check, if it's kept there only by violence? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, that is a kind of the age-old question. Uh, um, and Augustine, of course, famously saying an unjust law is no law at all. Um, that that peace, and this is a very Jewish idea too, right? Where you get shalom, uh, where, where peace is more than just the absence of conflict. And I think in, in most Christian traditions, that's the answer you're going to get. It's, it's really a correct ordering of things, um, where all things are right, not where they are simply uh, lacking dis, this um, violence. And I, I think that that is an important point to bring up, especially when you, we, we talk about Augustus and historically this idea of the Pax Romana, Right, the the peace that he supposedly brings to the Roman Empire for um, about 40, 40 years or so, and I, I think historically there's a lot of challenge to that idea that there was peace, but even ideologically, right, this idea of can you have peace in a system like the Roman Empire, and I think you would have most. Uh, Republicans, right? Most of the pro-Brutus camp, the pro-Cicero camp, saying, "Well, no, that that's not a peace. That's just uh, tyranny." <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, to anyone who's interested in looking closer at that story of Hercules and Caucus, it is in um, Book Eight, and um, I think it's very rich for discussion. Bring it up in class. Um, your your instructors will appreciate it. Mm. Also. Um, to the idea of the juxtaposition of Rome as basically the human and the civilized to um, versus the inhuman, um, less human, uh, less civilized. There's the description of Aeneas's shield and yeah. basically Rome lined up against the animal-headed gods of Rome, uh, Egypt, I believe mm-hmm. is how it's described. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I that that scene right there is is one of the most famous in uh, Roman literature, where you have the description of of Aeneas's shield and again just like a very rich historical moment where you have the description of the battle of Actium was that Actium no yes no idea <laughs> oh yeah. I don't know my history well enough 
but yeah, where you have Augustus fighting against uh, um, Mark Antony, Marcus Antonius, and uh, Cleopatra. Yeah, where is it then, thinking of what makes Rome distinct, there's that scene where uh, Aeneas is in the underworld Mm -hmm. and speaks, is it with his father? And his father basically says, you know, leave philosophy and whatever to the Greeks and so (laughs) on. The Romans are there to make law and enforce peace. And um, it's very interesting to see the Roman self-conception there. Right. And historically, too, I mean, we're talking about this is the moment where the Roman Empire is at its greatest. Um, it, it gets a little bit bigger, I think, in the next couple decades. But right now, right, you have like the furthest reaches of Britain, uh, all of North Africa. And, and this is kind of the message then of what Rome is, is it's, it's to bring peace and settled order to this entire region, what they would call the world, um, because to their sense of what the world encompassed, that was pretty much it. Sort of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Yes, a sort of, yeah. Although the peace, and this gets kind of back into this discussion of peace, the peace they had was not very peaceful. Mm. Um, it was not very correctly ordered. Uh, and this is something we see then later when the Christians emerge and then you have persecution of the Christians. Um, but then also then thinking about, uh, I guess, taking this concept then of, of peace in the city and then transferring it over to the distinction that Augustus, Augustine makes then between the city of man and the city of God. Right? I think we can compare the peace that comes from the Pax Romana as the city of man compared to the peace then that is the peace on earth, goodwill to to all men that is from the city of God. Yeah, and I think what's interesting though before we get into like the specifics of what that peace looks like is just to recognize that in the Christian world and okay, so the Aeneid basically describes the the world or the conception of Rome that was prevalent at the time, um, shortly before Christianity came um, around. And so it was in a sense what it had to compete with, but in another sense, I think it gave Christians a lot to think about. It gave Christians a lot of their language or language to express that what they were proclaiming was directly in competition with it, but in some ways very similar to it. So I think we can learn a lot, actually. And Augustine himself struggles with this tension, I would say. Um, the relationship between Christians and the classics is just a whole different um, conversation. But, you know, he talks about, you know, um, rejecting the Aeneid eventually, but really loving it as a young man. And right. um, there's a strong argument that the Confessions itself is very modeled off the Aeneid in some ways, and except in terms of an internal journey rather than a, um, a physical one. But yeah, Hebrews talks about Abraham looking forward to a city that um, he didn't see, that he didn't yet see. And I think Christians can learn a lot from Aeneas as someone who, unlike Odysseus, is not going home to a city that exists, but to a promised city. Hmm. So, Yeah, that is right. Um, and the idea, too, that he's laying the foundations, 
It's laying the foundations. And then the sense of what are we doing here, right? Well, if if this isn't the city, then, you know, I think it it's very easy then to go, well, we should just, you know, get to the promised city as fast as we can. Mm-hmm. But when you look at Aeneas's position there there is no option he can't just you know get to the future um but then he is given that that vision of in the under underworld the vision of you know all the people who will come after him and they're described to him and then on his shield too um it's it's a very interesting passage uh when it's described it said uh, he is, he's so enamored by it. He can't take his eyes off of it, but he has no idea what it's depicting. And it's this idea that there is a great beauty to what is depicted, but he, he doesn't have the understanding to realize what that depiction is of. And I think then there's a little bit of that in what we think about of the promised city, right? Where, we're given these very vague descriptions in in the in the Bible of what heaven of what uh, the New Jerusalem will be like, and they're always arguably very allegorical too, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very metaphorical. And then we can still though just kind of get lost in the beauty of those descriptions without even understanding what it is that they're dis- depicting. Yeah. I really like that. I think the image of being completely captivated, fascinated by something, but not understanding it is a great way of describing how Christians have related to the book of Revelation. Yeah. Historically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To say the least, yeah. to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was something else I was going to say, but I don't remember. Yeah. It was in that thread. Well, I guess maybe this will jog your memory a bit. It's a related point. It's, well, as we wait, I guess this we experience kind of like Aeneas, this idea of the already and not yet. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're hoping for the kingdom of God in its fullness, for the city of God, I suppose, to be revealed in its fullness, but we don't quite see it yet. It's the idea of a mustard seed, I guess. Um, yeah. Or this is, this is the point. You did jog my memory. What Paul says, um, uh, you know, now we see as if in a mirror dimly, but then we don't see face to face. Right. Mm-hmm. Again, that idea of there, but but not understanding, not realizing yeah. what is in store. And then what I was going to say from that is, as we wait, what do we do? And I think even there, the Aeneas gives us an interesting picture. It's the idea of cultivating right relationships, mm. if that makes sense. Because the... You think, uh, do you think Aeneas's relationship with... T- with Turnus was the right relationship. Um, that was less where I was thinking. Uh, what I was thinking about. <laughs> I was thinking more about. It's a very powerful image. The the sculpture. I forget who did it. Of Aeneas with his father and yeah. son, um, yeah. uh, carrying them out of Troy. I think that's a very powerful image. And uh, so, well, it was a very powerful thought image. Thought image that turned into a very powerful sculpture too. Right. Um, and you know, I think. There is something to learn from that. But the funny thing is for us as Christians, in the little image, Aeneas is carrying his father, who in turn is carrying their little household gods. But mm-hmm. as Christians, we have a God who you know carries us. Mm-hmm. It's the other way around. Yeah. Um, but even there, I think 
we can learn that as we wait, we do cultivate the right relationships to others. It won't look quite the same as Roman piety, but there's something to be learned in a world that downplays the importance of civic and familial relationships yeah. from Roman piety. Um, in terms of right relationships, what do we think of Aeneas and Dido? Um, what's going on there? Uh, um, not a right relationship. Not a right relationship <laughs> or, you know, okay. At least, well, so in the Roman, again, like you, I know it seems like everything I've said about this book so far, you just have to understand Roman history. But in a, in a sense, right, the literary richness is just enhanced by an understanding of the, the historical moment that is occurring. And with Dido especially, right, you have this uh, Carthage, right? Mm -hmm. Carthage, the great enemy of the early Republic mm -hmm. um, that absolutely ravages Rome twice. And then Rome finally just destroys Carthage. And you have this then mindset later on of how monumental this was. And speaking just historically, like Rome did not have to be the empire that we know it as. Carthage very easily could have just kicked it out of our history books. And what we would know the, the Carthagin, Carthaginian empire instead. But no, then you have this conquering. And so there's a little bit of that happening with Dido, where you have um, Dido representing Carthage and Aeneas representing Rome to be, um, but nonetheless Rome, and setting up the foundation for that uh, monumental conflict. But then on the more personal side, uh, you have... I guess, a sense of duty. And that's what drives Aeneas away is his fate. And he knows he has to fulfill this mission. And as much as he wants to stay behind with Dido, he has a greater calling. And I, I mean, I don't know where you wanted to go with this, but I think there is something to be learned in that too, which is that... Um, uh, like Jesus a, a couple of times says, you know, you have to leave your father and mother behind. Or uh, I think it's the same passage where he says, I, I came not to bring peace, but the sword. And then he says, you know, like uh, son against father, mother against daughter or something like that. And so there is this sense then that our duty extends beyond what we might consider those closest relationships that there is this sense that um, we are part of a different family. Mm -hmm. And for Aeneas, that family was the great tradition of Rome, um, all of his uh, sons-to-be eventually leading to Augustus. And for us, I think it's, right, it's a family of brothers and sisters united by the firstborn, Jesus Christ, and then leaving behind can be difficult, those worldly relations that do feel very close. But then we have a mission to them, which is where it gets a little different from Aeneas, which is not to just <laughs> kick them out of the true family, but then to seek to bring them into right relationship with the true family. Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Um, I felt like bringing it up just because I thought we couldn't talk about the Aeneid without talking about that. And 
yeah, I mean, I, I personally don't really know how to think about it. I think those were some helpful thoughts. I think arguably, though, even with that sense of duty, knowing that Aeneas did the right thing, I think the Aeneid also portrays Dido very sympathetically in mm -hmm. some ways, or at least, I mean, it was a common practice, and Augustine talks about this, of weeping over the death of Dido. You mm -hmm. know, It's supposed to be emotionally compelling in that way. It is a sad moment. So I mentioned this when you first brought up relationships, but Turnus then. How do we how do we make sense of that relationship where you have Aeneas fighting the the Italians headed by Turnus, um, and the very last scene then of the book is Aeneas killing Turnus. Yeah, that's interesting. If I remember correctly, it's a little surprising that last scene, just because in it we seem to have a picture of um, Aeneas as a man motivated largely out of anger and be stepping a little beyond the bounds of self-control, which I think, um, I forget, I think this was again Aeneas's father speaking to him in the underworld about um, the point of Rome, about the purpose of Rome, mm -hmm. and the idea of the right limits even to Roman um, justice and punishment was a big part of that. So um, I think the ending leaves, uh, this, this final scene gives us a question of what's going on. Um, is Aeneas living up to that? Um, and again, it raises the question of violence in the um, establishing of Roman order. Yeah. And then I think there might be a bit of a historical comment in there. I mean, it, it really depends on how you interpret that. But um, interpreters for the longest time have been trying to see anti-Augustus sentiments uh, throughout uh, the Aeneid, to, um, you know, depending on how you want to rate those to greater or lesser degrees of success. Um, so there is a sense of that. But I think, too, um, I think depending on then how you interpret that, we can either see it as, on the one hand, uh, the difficulty of being in right relationship with others, that it's very easy to seek violence out of hatred um, rather than turning the other cheek, for instance, or loving our enemies um, and praying for those who persecute us. But then on the other hand, if you see it more as um, kind of this triumphal conquering of the true enemy, well, I think that has a very easy comparison then to um, a triumph perhaps over temptation where you're putting to death the desires of your flesh. Yeah, I think, frankly, just on the level of methodology here, it's kind of interesting uh, to think of you know how Christians might have read this um, mm -hmm. beyond the initial response to uh, kind of discarding it, but also kind of really um, enjoying the Aeneid. I believe there was a tradition in the Middle Ages of thinking of Virgil is basically a pre-Christian. <laughs> yeah, someone who's very pre-Christian. The, uh, the medievalists always wanted to bring as many as many of the ancients into their fold as they could. Yeah, Plato and Aristotle too, if only. I think that's a good place to, to leave off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you want to, you brought this up earlier, so just to not leave any loose threads hanging, did you want to say any words about peace specifically, um, what peace might look like in the city of God as compared to? Oh, yeah. Um, well, it would not look, I, you know, on the one hand, I think 
part of it will depend on what your eschatology is. Um, like all of those uh, those post mills out there are going to see like the Pax Romana then might have a very direct correlation to like a, a Pax Christiana in the millennium. Um, that would be very different um, in the sense that it's not just this absence of conflict in the empire, but it's actually kind of the triumph of right relation of ordered justice around the globe. Um, but for those who are not post mill, myself included, then the, the peace then of God of his city, I think can be viewed in two ways. The, the way it is kind of foreseen on this earth where you do have kind of a greater portrayal of right ordered relationships and justice within the church and among its members, its true members. Or then you have the sense of the completed peace in the New Jerusalem, in the, in the restored city of God, um, the final addition, if you will, where there is just this complete proper ordering as opposed to just this absence of conflict. Yeah, I think that's good. I think the peace of the kingdom of God will be surprising. Um, yeah. I just think back to Daniel where there's the succession of empires prophesied and mm. I think most interpreters would say it's Rome, the, the great beast of iron whose yeah. feet are mingled with clay and it's knocked down by a little rock, um, which, you know, is Christ. And so we live in an empire that's pretty different from the others. It was inaugurated by a crucified man and um, who lives now. And we live in an empire that's been compared to mustard seeds and not <laughs> to, not to, you know, great expanses of um, heroes, demigods triumphing yeah. over semi-human monsters in caves. <laughs> so it's, it's fun. This little tension. Mm. To uh to close off, do you want to just read the uh the proem? Um, right. Let me pull it up. Like so good. Again, this is a little older translation. That's why it rhymes. That's why they're they're so good, bro. Arms and the man I sing, who forced by fate and haughty Juno's unrelenting hate, expelled and exiled, left the Trojan shore. Long labors, both by sea and land, he bore, and in the doubtful war before he won the Lycian realm, and built the destined town, his banished gods restored to rights divine and settled sure succession in his line. So good. I have nothing more to say. We'll let, we'll let Virgil have the final word. And with that, uh, thank you for listening. Artisher, do you know our uh, social media handles yet? No, you've been here a few times, but a few times few, too few as well. Um, so you can reach out by email. We would love to hear from you at witnessthegoodfight at gmail.com. Uh, very easy to rem remember there and always great to get an email from a listener. Or you can uh, direct message or just follow us on Instagram or Facebook at wit... wit no. What is it? Uh... Oh, at the Good Fight Pod. That's what it is. At the Good Fight Pod on uh, Twitter, 
not Twitter anymore, but on Instagram or Facebook, we post weekly, or at least I hope we do. Faven takes care of that. Um, so uh, I hope to hear from you soon. And until next week, we shall talk then. Talk to you then. Mm-hmm.